0: ReachMD XM-157 presents a special series, Insights in
1: Future Medicine. A quadriplegic patient opens her computer program, controls her TV, and turns on room lights using only her mind. You're listening to ReachMD XM-157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Future Medicine. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host. And with me today is Dr. John Donahue. Dr. Donahue is the Riston Professor and Director of the Brain Services Program at Brown University. He is the author of more than 100 articles and book chapters in the neurosciences. And he is a recipient of the Javits Neuroscience Investigators Award from the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Yu comes to us today from his office in Providence, Rhode Island. And today we're discussing brain computer interface the current stage of the art. Dr. Donahue, thanks for uh, being with us today. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. John, you've been a, a teacher, you've been uh, doing research for a lot of years. We we're interested in talking about your work with brain-computer interfaces. How would you come to be interested in, the, in this area of, of the world?
0: A couple of reasons. One is I had always been interested in medicine and ways of helping those with neurological disabilities. I actually spent some time myself in a wheelchair as a child with a bone disorder and uh, so got to know the medical system a little bit that way and also to know the limitations of being restricted in your mobility then later of course the interest in science and specifically interested I was interested in how the brain turned our intentions about action into movement. And through the course of our work, we discovered that we had actually made discoveries that we could help individuals with paralysis using our knowledge gained about the technology and the information processing that goes on in the brain.
1: I think we all know uh, if we've grown up with computers, we've transitioned over the years from uh, DOS commands to mouse commands, and we, we know at least peripherally that there's other ways to con- control a computer, even for someone who's uh, wheelchair-bound. What's been done in the field up up to the time you came into this business?
0: We see a computer as, as a very liberating technology for individuals who have severe movement impairments, You know, who have the inability to interact with their arms in the ordinary way that you or I would interact, say, typing and using a mouse. So typically there are devices, there's a very good wheelchair control, sip and puff. There are various devices for controlling, either using the head or the eyes. The ideas of going directly from the brain to devices came from a couple of different directions. One of them is to use the brain signals that you can record on the outside, basically EEG signals, and use them to activate switches or to you know as a as a kind of control signal and that's actively under development. We see using the spike-based signals, the internal signals of the brain as a way to gather to get much more information and actually something on a path whereby we can restore function to individuals who are paralyzed.
1: For those of us that are not neurologists uh, or or very familiar with some of this research, tell us a little bit about the difference between what you record in a surface recording, an EEG, and and the kinds of things that your research is involved in.
0: Actually, that's a very good question because it's something that's actually back on the minds of neuroscientists as something that's been somewhat ignored. That is, physicians look at signals outside the brain. The one name for them is field potentials and an EEG is an example, And, and clinicians use EEGs to differentiate whether a person is, for example, comatose or not, or whether they're having a seizure or a particular kind of seizure or not. These are gross brain waves, and they give lots of information about brain state, and they can be re- recorded from the outside of the head or on the surface of the brain or even inside the brain. The other potential is called an action potential, which most people remember from some biology course they took. These are thousandths of a second long spikes. They're impulses, and sort of like a Morse code that comes out of every neuron And it is the information code of your nervous system everywhere. And so those are the signals that we go after because we believe we can extract the actual information about, say, what you would like to do with your hand, but if you're paralyzed, you couldn't do.
1: And is it fair to say that going after action potentials is uh, much more challenging from an engineering sense?
0: Absolutely more challenging. As I said, EEGs can be done, you know, as a routine office procedure for physicians. They can pick it up from the outside with... uh, Sensors that are relatively straightforward to put on. The action potentials can only be recorded using microelectrodes that are inserted into the brain. Not far necessarily, but just tiny hair-thin electrodes that go just into the brain and get very close to neurons and pick up these impulses.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you uh, when you got into this business, were people doing that actively? Is this a brand-new area of investigation?
0: Well, the use of action potentials is the standard way that neurophysiologists who work with animals have come to understand how the brain operates. So there are literally tens of thousands of laboratories using that kind of technology on an everyday basis for experimental investigation. In humans, the use of this signal is extremely limited and typically only for mapping purposes in the operating room, but not outside. So this is really the first time when we've had the opportunity have these sensors in the brain that allow us to follow action potentials or spikes in humans for long periods of time
1: and I assume that as you 've been working in this area you 've called on the expertise of uh, many different kinds of specialists it's, This sounds to me like it would need some engineering skills, some bioengineering types, especially now that we 're dealing with humans. Did it require uh, great leaps of technology to begin applying this technology to humans, and if so, how'd you go about? Finding the people you needed to work with your group.
0: First of all, this is an enormous interdisciplinary effort, and the actual implementation of a device for humans requires that we develop a sensor that can pick up these brain signals. That was something that wasn't possible when we first started and is still in the development stage. It requires mathematical algorithms and computers that can translate the complex electrical impulses, the spikes from the brain, into something that's meaningful and then drive it into something like a computer and then actually set up a technology that could s- translate those signals, those command signals, into something that would actually accomplish something useful for a human, like you know even typing a note, for example. So that would require fundamental neuroscience knowledge. Where in the brain would you go? What, would the, what are the signals going to look like? How would you record them? What do they mean in terms of a basic sense? So that re- required neuroscience. The translation part required applied mathematicians and computer scientists to help us build the algorithms, and, of course, clinicians to say, help us, how would you design this so it could be implanted safely and properly in a human setting? What materials would you use? Uh, That required the input of engineers, and all the appropriate and safe electronics, which also required engineers. So it really is a very diverse group, and we've assembled that kind of group between both my colleagues here at Brown and also through the startup company that I formed to try and make the transition from the preclinical university work to a pilot human trial.
1: So, John, you've talked a little bit about the interdisciplinary teams that are, are necessary to pursue this this kind of work. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about one of the articles that I, I guess is sort of famous in your circles from the 2002 Nature Journal that dealt with how monkeys in your lab were implanted with electrodes and taught to play video games using thought alone. At least that's how we hear the sound bites. Could you talk a little bit about that research and, and what you learned from it?
0: Sure. I, I think that was the culminating preclinical demonstration or proof of concept that we could go from the laboratory towards human applications or at least a human pilot trial. So in that experiment, we had developed the system in which we had a, this tiny microelectrode array about the size of a baby aspirin that was implanted into the brain to pick up brain signals, and then externally computers that would translate those signals into a control signal, and then a computer. And we we had implanted that array in monkeys to test out its ability to record, particularly to record for long periods of time without any kind of adverse events. So in the experiment, what we did is we had monkeys play a video game, basically holding something like a joystick. They could see a cursor on a screen, and we would put a target up on the screen, and the monkey's job... And the video game was simply to move its cursor over to the target. And then the target would jump to a new spot and the monkey would go to the next place and the monkeys like to play these video games. So at the same time the monkey was playing the video game, we had recorded brain activity. We had recorded what his arm was doing. And we made a map or this decoder between the brain activity and the arm activity. And then with that decoder, we could now take the brain activity out as it was evolving, decode it, and instead of allowing the hand to guide the cursor, we plugged the brain activity directly into the computer, which thought it was a mouse input. And that was then immediately driving the cursor. And the monkey went on playing the game as if he was using his arm to play it, but he was actually using the brain signal. And the fact that he could do that instantly was a demonstration that, in fact, all of the essential steps for a human neural prosthesis system could be accomplished. You could sense activity you could decode it and you could use it to control something.
1: Did that surprise you or was it just a matter of demonstrating something you felt uh, theoretically was was just there?
0: It was still pretty amazing. It should have worked based on all the pieces that we knew, but I suppose it's like a car. You know, I guess, you know, when you build it, you think all the pieces are there, but Mm -hmm. will it really work when you put it all together?
1: What kind of uh, media attention did you get back then? And professional as well. There was
0: quite a bit of of interest. We had a, a lot of press attention, I think, a lot of media interviews because I think People are naturally intrigued by the ability to take thoughts directly from the brain and translate them into actions rather than going through the usual route in the, in the muscles.
1: Did you get any feedback from people who thought you maybe shouldn't be reading minds and figuring things to do with, with such technology?
0: There has been concern, and I think it's an appropriate question about what could you read. Now, we're reading very rudimentary signals and, in fact, a very small sample of brain activity whenever we do this. What we were doing was really based on a very small sample of brain activity. And so people who were concerned that we might be able to read out more complex thoughts, we say, you know, we really, in order to understand what's going on in your brain, we would have to read out almost all of the cells to know everything that's going on. So technology... Potentially can advance where we can learn more and more about the internal actions of the brain, and that's an ethical issue of how far would this field go someday. But we're really quite a long ways from
1: that. If you are just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Future Medicine on Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. I'm speaking with Dr. John Donahue. And we're discussing computer brain interfaces. Is it fair to say that after that proof of concept that that's when you felt comfortable with moving forward with thinking about applying this uh, technology to humans?
0: That was the event that got us to go forward with the idea of starting a company that would help us translate the preclinical data into something that could be presented to the FDA and propose a clinical trial. It took about a year and the efforts of really 30 people at Cyberkinetics, the company we started, and about $6 million of investment because we had to do, uh, first assemble all the data that we had, do toxicology testing, do electrical safety testing, manufacturing control, and and put all those documents together and go through the FDA approval process, go through IRB approval. But within about a year, we were successful in implanted our first patient.
1: Well, that is a fascinating story. I hope we get a chance to talk about it some more. My thanks to Dr. John Donahue, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing computer brain interfaces. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to A Focus on Future Medicine on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library.
0: Thank you for listening to a special series, Insights in Future Medicine, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.